Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we're going to begin at the beginning. The book of Genesis, chapter 1. We're going to do a series of studies in Genesis, and I hope to bring out one that I am a literalist. That means I really do believe the Bible is written the way it's supposed to be believed. And I also am a pictorialist. I believe that there are pictures in the Bible, some prophetic, some just for our example to learn. And so in going through this precious book, I hope to point out some of the pictures that point to our growth in the Lord. We'll do that with some takeaways. I hope that you'll ponder them, can consider them in each case. All right, let's get started. Chapter 1. In the beginning, God. Now, throughout the Bible, there is never any attempt made to prove the existence of God. In the old comedy series, Family Ties, the somewhat ditzy daughter, Mallory, has a homework assignment from her philosophy class to prove that she exists. Now, after days of anguish, a moment of illumination brings a smile to her face. Standing in the kitchen with her family listening, she exclaims, I shop, therefore I am. (laughs) Fortunately, God doesn't face that anguish. Being perfectly content as the great I am, he never bothers to try to prove it. He always was, is, and always will be. It is upon this fundamental truth, the eternal existence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, that the rest of the revealed word and nature of God is given. Here in this first phrase of the Bible, we also have revealed the triune nature of the Lord. The Hebrew word for God is El, which is singular. There is Elah, which is dual, and Elohim, which represents three or more. Now, the form we find here in this phrase is Elohim. As if to emphasize this compound unity, we read in the famous Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's from Deuteronomy 6. The word for one here means a united or compound oneness. What a wonderful and yet mysterious thing. God is triune and yet one. And man made in the image of God is triune as well. Thus the scriptural command from Deuteronomy 6, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus said in Mark 12 that this was the most important commandment. It addresses the heart, which is the seat of the Spirit, the soul, which is your character, and strength, which speaks of the body. The divine plan is for a complete relationship between God and man, all-encompassing, fully integrated, a compound unity of relationship. Additionally, 
there is a triune correspondence to the Godhead in that we read in Scripture that God the Father is spirit. John 4, 24. Jesus the Son came in the flesh. 2 John 7. And the soul made alive by the breath of God. Genesis 2, 7 points to the Ruach, that's Hebrew, or Numa, that's the Greek, for the Holy Spirit. It's the same words. See John 20, 22 as an example. Rabbi Simeon ben Hawaki, I hope I said that right, commenting on this said, Come and see the mystery of the word Elohim. There are three degrees, and each degree by itself alone, and yet, notwithstanding, they are all one, and joined together in one, and are not divided from each other. So what's your takeaway now? First phrase, one, God's eternal existence, past, present, future, the ancient of days, the great I am. Second, God is triune, and yet unified in nature. Genesis continues, God created the heavens and the earth. Immediately following the fundamental truths, the Lord placed what is to many the highest hurdle of faith, that he indeed created everything. It wasn't just some fortuitous happenstance, no cosmic fluke, nor an incredibly lucky series of evolutionary events. You know, the story is told of Sir Isaac Newton, arguably one of the most intellectually brilliant men, apart from Christ, who ever lived. Uh, He was ridiculed by Voltaire as a doddering fool for his faith in the Almighty, who, in desiring to demonstrate this principle of creation to his learned friends, made a handsome model of the solar system. As his companions gathered in his home, they noticed the model and praised Sir Isaac for his remarkable work. He responded by saying that he really couldn't take the credit because it had simply appeared out of nowhere. It had just come into being on its own. Well, his guests argued that this was baseless and ridiculous. Of course it didn't just appear. There had to be some design or some careful thought given by someone for such a masterful model to have been built. Well, then the light came on, and they realized they'd been had. For indeed, just as it was absurd to suppose that the little model had accidentally appeared out of nowhere, it was even more incredible to give credence to the idea that the marvelous complexity and intricacy of the universe appeared without a masterful creator behind it. And it is all the more amazing when we consider the greatness of it all. You know, a typical galaxy contains billions, that's with a B, billions of individual stars. Our own, the Milky Way, contains some 200 billion stars, It's shaped like a giant spiral rotating in space, with arms reaching out as on a pinwheel. And it's so large that one full rotation of that wheel would take about 250 million years. Unimpressed? Hmm. How about this? The average distance between galaxies is about 20 million trillion miles. 
I'll say that again. About 20 million trillion miles. In fact, the closest galaxy to our own is the Andromeda galaxy, about 12 million trillion miles away. Still unimpressed? Well, for each patch of sky the size of the moon, searching deeply, you would observe about a million galaxies. Yet what is even more impressive is that our God is bigger than all of that. In Isaiah, he poses the rhetorical question, Isaiah 40, verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured the heaven, that's the visible universe, with a span? I'll spread your hand out and look at the distance between your thumb and little finger. That's a span. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. And he fills it all. You know, the psalmist wrote, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Psalms 139. What is staggering in its profundity is that God, who is bigger than all his creation, chose to become a single cell within the womb of the Virgin Mary. The infinitely huge became the microscopically small en route to the salvation of mankind. Here in the beginning... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit created the universe, both seen and unseen. And of note is the Hebrew word used here for create. It is pronounced bara, kind of like B-A-R-A, bara, which is to create something out of nothing. Clearly something only God can do. So for this little part, what's your takeaway? One. It is in the nature of our God to create. Next, God is far bigger than our minds can comprehend. Consequently, he is big enough to take on your problems, your sins, if you'll let him, no matter where you're at. And thirdly, God, as big as he is, is aware of the smallest detail. Well, Genesis continues. The earth was without form and void. Now, whereas the word bara that we talked about just a few seconds ago is used in the beginning of God's creation, afterward it is always asah, kind of like A-S-A-H, asah, which means to refashion out of existing material. Now, this leads to a point of some controversy in understanding this portion of Scripture. You see, was here, can mean equally, became. And there are those who believe that the original creation of God became corrupted by Satan. They point to the fact that he drew one-third of the angels of heaven into his darkness and propose that he may have destroyed the planet Earth in his banishment to it. Thus, it became Tohu Vah Bohu, translated 
without form and void. Now, others strongly assert that this is not the case and that what we have here is an intermediate state of the creation, which was the palette in God's creative hand, if you would, and in which he continued his work. Whatever the case, what is plain is that God took a planet in shapeless chaos and began his good work. And this is telling of his divine nature. God can work with the formless void, whether it's planet Earth or planet you or planet me. Compared to the perfect character of the Lord, that's exactly what I am, a formless void. And so are you. Does that seem a little bit extreme in its criticality? Well, trust me on this. The longer you walk with him and get to know him, the more you realize the formless void your life was without him. And now your takeaway, God knew you were a formless void without him, and someday you will too. Genesis goes on. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, or literally brooding, over the face of the waters. Now, deep here literally is abyss, and refers to the vast seas which covered the whole earth. If we consider, however, the type or word picture here, and remember I told you I was going to point out some pictures, we can see the Gentile or unbelieving nations. Throughout Scripture, the ocean or seas, especially in prophecy, are a type or symbol of the people alienated from God. Thus, we can't help but sense the poetry of God's purpose to bring his spirit into those places, those lives of churning darkness and unbelief. As Jesus spoke of him in John 16, 8, he said, And when he is come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The spirit, he broods over the darkness, not to condemn, but to convict and to comfort, to bring the loving creative power of God to bear. And your takeaway? Simply, God's Spirit convicts. He doesn't condemn. Genesis goes on. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Notice the gentle yet irresistible power in his command. We observe this in the same phraseology throughout the creation story. Let is in the imperfect tense. The imperfect is used to express the future, referring not only to an action which is about to take place or be accomplished, but one which has not yet begun. As such, it expresses an action, process, or condition which is incomplete. God started with light, but there was much more to come. God spoke in the psalmist, wrote, quote, The entrance of your word gives light. Just as the light here made manifest the formless void upon which it shone, so the entrance of God's word into the heart of man reveals the ruin and emptiness which sin has enjoined. The Bible says, quote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. And all things are exposed and made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. 
Ephesians 5.13 When God brings light into our unbelieving heart, it is a let command. It exposes us, our sinful ways, our need for him. Pertaining to our salvation as well, his command is also in the imperfect tense. It's a starting point in making us a new creation. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And your takeaway, the first step in a new creation is God's light shining upon a formless void. And secondly, there's more to come. Genesis goes on. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Here are a couple of fundamental principles for the Christian. First, what God does is indeed good. In fact, verse 31 says, very good. He can't really help it, you see. He is good. Goodness is simply an attribute of his divine being. Quote, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. That's Psalms 34. And for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. That's Psalms 86. And from Psalms 107, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And it's a very unbalanced attribute. Infinite, in fact. And we need to get this down. God is good. He's not the force of Star Wars or a divine nothingness of Eastern mysticism or the yin and yang. He's totally, completely, infinitely good. Consequently, all that he does is good. The mess that sinful man and Satan have made of this world never confuse them with God's doing. The second principle is that light and darkness, guess what? They don't coexist. They are forever separate. This is important to consider, for it is one of the devil's schemes to confuse that matter, to attempt to bring mixture, spiritually speaking, He desires to contaminate good with evil, light with darkness, purity with poison, and to convince man that as long as he's got some good, some light, or some purity, well, it's okay. But that notion is a huge deception, a big lie. Consider this allegory. Take a glass of pure, clean spring water and a mug of slimy, foul-smelling, toxic waste, which one would you drink? Well, most of us would pick the water. Now, just take a spoonful of the toxic waste and stir it into the spring water and consider, now, which one would you drink? Well, most of us would say, yuck, neither one. The same is true of the divine principle. Light and darkness don't mix. Spiritually speaking, they are purely binary. There's no evil in God whatsoever, none. Conversely, you can stop looking for true goodness elsewhere. That probably sounds 
radical or harsh, but when you finally realize that what Jesus said is true, he said, there is none good but one, that is God. Matthew 19, 17. You can appreciate that whatever goodness you observe is simply God at work. There is no goodness apart from him, not in man and certainly not in Satan. Now, pertaining to salvation, this is important. For Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. You won't find God mixing his light, his truth, with other things. Man is continually guilty of that, and Satan is perpetually so engaged. Pitiful condition of the church today is the result of such mixture. And the sorry state of some of us Christians individually is frequently due to the same. Now, your takeaway, three things. One, God is good. Everything he does is consequently good. Second, there is no darkness whatsoever in him. And thirdly, light and darkness are always distinct from one another. Well, Genesis goes on. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, we should notice the order here. The evening and the morning were the first day. Contrary to our own perspective, that the day begins each morning and grows progressively darker, if you would, in God's economy, the day starts dark and gets progressively brighter. You know, we're going to be very surprised when we get to heaven and find out just how many of our earthly perspectives have been upside down. Well, Genesis goes on. Then God said, Let there be a firmament, that means expanse, in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So, The evening and the morning were the second day. On the second day, God created what we call the sky. Now, understand that there are three entities known as heaven. The sky, the cosmos or greater universe, and the spiritual place of God's abode. Now, the Apostle Paul intimates in one of his epistles that at one point he was temporarily caught up into the third heaven, that is, the place we commonly refer to as heaven. Now, with the sky, or the first heaven put in place, between the waters, you should picture a shell or a canopy of water surrounding our planet, with great oceans below, separated by our atmosphere. Now, creation scientists say this canopy shell of water could account for a greenhouse effect, which moderated temperature changes and variations over the whole planet. It could also have filtered out much harmful cosmic radiation, which some attest is responsible for our aging. The picture here, pertinent to salvation, is that just as God's word separated the waters from above 
from the waters on earth. So it separates in the life of the believer the heavenly from the earthly, the spiritual from the carnal. Without it, by implication, there is no separation. This is especially important in the life of a new believer, for we live in an age in which a lot of earthly waters or teachings are pretending to be heavenly. Also, we should note that the whole world at this point was covered with an ocean. Not only do waters speak of doctrine or teaching as we see in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, and Ephesians 5, but as mentioned earlier, the sea specifically pictures the Gentiles or unbelievers. As such, we can consider this in picture or type as our world of faithlessness and disbelief filled with the doctrine of the devil. The Bible says, quote, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's Psalms 53. And that's exactly where we came from. The sea of faithlessness and disbelief. None of us came into the kingdom of God because we were good. Everyone found in the book of life was saved by God's grace. And so your takeaway, God's word discerns the heavenly from the earthly. So Genesis goes on. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So after the separation of the waters, it seems that the Lord created vast aquifers, subterranean water chambers, which caused the earth to be pushed upward and thus appear. Later, these chambers of the deep played a role in the judgment of God in the days of Noah. Now, in type or picture, the soil or earth often refers to the heart of man, as in the parable of the sower found in Matthew 13. The earth being exposed speaks of what God's word does. It exposes what's in the heart. For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 What's in our hearts needs to be exposed for our own good, because some of us can have the idea that we're not so bad, that after all, God made a good choice in choosing us. <laughs> I mean, I'm not as earthy as that guy in the seat behind me. Our hearts are earthy. God knows it. Psalms 103. But we are often either deceived into thinking we're less wretched than we are, or so ashamed and embarrassed that we think we must hide it all. Frankly, both attitudes are fueled by pride. 
Swamped beneath the tide of Satan's lies, our hearts need to be exposed. We need confession. John, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, so your takeaway here, don't let the flood of Satan's lies and doubts keep you down and under it. Next, confess your faults to one another, especially to God, and pray for one another. And God's word exposes what's in our hearts, and his purposes in doing so are always good. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast and may you realize more of his grace today.